disruptors and disrupteds. It is me, Gerardo Munoz. I am your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, AKA Illosopher King. And I just wanna welcome you all to my Illosopher's Chair. Um, as we get into this conversation that is like next level, that I cannot wait for, that I nearly fell out of my chair when it got scheduled in the first place. And uh, man, I think y'all are really gonna enjoy what is happening here. So I'm out here. It's the eve of my first day of my doctoral program. I have a class that's four credits, three hours, 10 minutes tomorrow or today, since this is when you may be listening to the show. So if I'm a little off, that's actually why. So it's, uh, it's been a wild journey for sure. And uh, before we get into it, if you like Habitually Disruptive, you can find us on the Two Dope Teachers podcast feed, obviously. Um, feel free to comment and, um, and question and reach out to us and get connected by following us on our social media platforms at Two Dope Teachers, as well as um, Two Dope Teachers. Let me try that again. At Two Dope Teachers on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you can email us twodopeteachers at gmail.com. And um, you can make any comments or initiate any discussion using the hashtag habitually disruptive, um, you know, uh, habitually disruptive hashtag. I'm having trouble with words right now. I, th I think it's really like this, this doctoral program that is like freaking me out right now. Because right now this just really feels like a journey with no end. <laughs> it really does. But I'm really looking forward to it. I've started some pre-work for it. You know, I, I had a couple of assignments I needed to work on. I'm taking a class on community-based research. I'm taking a class on, um, on analysis of teaching, which is kind of bearing witness to teachers and teaching and kind of this humanizing lens, which I'm really excited about. And I'm also um, doing an independent study that seeks to center cultural responsiveness in teacher evaluation. So just really interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now, like my advisor has shared with me that this should, I should be able to be efficient and relatively quick with this. Um, but looking at it, it just feels like a journey no end. Like how, how many PhD candidates have we known who are just at it for years and years and years and years and years? And it's just kind of like, I, I just find that really intimidating. I know there's one dude who like took double digit years to finish this and I, I want no part of that. Like I don't judge another person's journey, like for real, like life happens, there's a lot of difficulties, et cetera. But damn, maybe if you would have spent less time kicking it at parties with undergrads, you might've got done quicker shrugs. I don't know, but I know pride comes before a fall. Um, so I need to be careful about my judgments because I know that this program is about to be the realist. Um, part of what I've been doing for this is reading David Hansen's um, book, Reimagining the Call to Teach. It's actually asking me some really important questions about the individual paths and identities of teachers. Um, and as I'm working as a senior team lead whose responsibility it'll be to coach and support and evaluate teachers this year, this work has some real important implications. Like I, I've never wanted to replicate myself as a teacher. 
Um, mostly because like if I had to be around a teacher that was just like me, I would get so annoyed. I want nothing to do with that. Um, but how I'm able to see a teacher's growth and learning and implementation and reflection through through my lens, knowing that it's only my lens, I think is something I'm super excited about. But uh, you can count on hearing about my journey, um, you know, and I hope that I've got the strength. I've hoped that I have what it takes to balance everything, to make it all happen for myself, for my family. Um, this, I guess, is my little version of freedom dreaming. Um, if I can get free, maybe I can get others free with me. So it's about to be Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, I'm going to call it Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm not going to call it Latino Heritage Month or Latinx Heritage Month because that's really not what it was named. And I think it's important to note that the creators of the month chose Hispanic Heritage Month as the name. And embedded within this, um, this month-long, four-week, four or five-week observance is a certain set of assumptions. Um, one of the assumptions is the primacy of the Spanish language. One is the assumption that it's about certain countries. Hispanic Heritage Month isn't about every country in Spanish, in the Spanish speaking Americas. Um, it's definitely not about Spain per se, even though it is a lot about the Spanish language. It's really about Central American countries and, um, you know, sort of calendared to match them. And, and over the years, it's grown into a more comprehensive Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and it's also informed by a, a particular lens and set of assumptions around unity. And, you know, I'm the first person to talk about a pan Latinx identity, but I also know that I might not be here for that. I, I also know that there's so many different ways that a person can identify as Latinx or a subgroup of Latinx that, you know, I may be calling for unity, but, you know, I haven't thought about who that really includes. So this particular lens of unity is very linguistically defined, geographically de defined, and defined around these sort of, um, these larger trends that tend to repeat themselves in, in our families and communities, religion, food, all that kind of stuff. And in fact, I just did an interview with my friend Luis um, Antesana uh, of Juntos to College. Definitely um, stay tuned for that one. Um, but even with food, you know, that's that's my brother from Bolivia. And he was telling me about a dish called pique macho, which I'd never heard of. And so even the foods can be really diverse as well. Um, I'm not mad. I'm not going to sit here and boycott, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month. I think that sometimes we make too much of the labels that we use. I think that when it comes to the term Hispanic, like I don't have to really outline the controversy around that. The, the main things you need to know is that A, it was created by the predominantly white United States government as a way to put all of us with Spanish surnames in the same category. And B, um, it represents kind of an over an overrepresentation of our Iberian roots and an underrepresentation of our black or indigenous roots and leaves a lot of people out. So, you know, uh, Latinx is one that's been widely criticized as well. I embrace it mo not because I consider myself Latinx. I'm a Latino, I'm a Chicano, I'm a Mexicano. Um, I'm a descendant of the first people of Mesoamerica. So these are, these are parts of my identity that are, that are important, but I use Latinx as a signal to my LGBTQIA plus family who um, 
who need to feel safe in our communities and who don't feel safe in our communities right now, you know, um, but while I'm not mad, I'm a good disruptor. And so I'm also part of efforts to interrupt, cause pause and ask the questions. So like, what about folks who don't identify as Hispanic like me? So my sister did 23 and me, and I'm not going to put all my genetics out there. Like that's, that's confidential. You don't get to know that unless we tight, then maybe you can. But one of the things that we learned is that our Iberian roots are almost non-existent. Like most of our European roots come from our white mom, who is of Scottish, Welsh, Polish, um, kind of like Northwestern European stock, not of Iberian stock. And our Spanish surname comes from people who are indigenous in Mexico and, you know, a good 40% of our uh, background comes from the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And so like I was joking with a student of mine who had, who literally has a grandparent from Spain, uh, but the student identifies as white um, that they're actually a lot more Hispanic than I am, even though I'm Brown and I speak Spanish. And so it's just really interesting. Um, but, you know, the question I have is, can we use this month, you know, to do more to help all of our raza be seen and celebrated during this month-long period? Can we make our bronze family seen? I already made mention of the LGBTQIA plus family that we have seen. Can it make those who don't speak Spanish feel seen? And I think that's the big question I'm asking about Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, but my disruption, I think, is more to expand community. And in this process of expanding community, man, I cannot tell you how excited I am to bring you this conversation between me and the wise, irrepressible Luis J. Rodriguez. Yes, that Luis J. Rodriguez. Like many folks, I was impacted by his book, Always Running, um, his chronicle of gang days in L.A. as a youth, and his other works, including The Concrete River, The Republic of East L.A., and Music of the Mill, continue to stick with me years after I first read them. Um, he's got this dope collection of essays out from our land to our land, in which he shares his observations, learning, and philosophies around identity, those around him, as well as his community. And, you know, one thing about uh, From Our Land to Our Land is I'm training for a marathon. I don't know what marathon. It might just be another hit on those run for justice. Um and so on my long runs, I tend to listen to a book. And there have been times that I had to pause and text myself a note um, reminding me of a passage that Luis wrote. Um, it's The book is a spiritual experience. This man is a spiritual experience. And I've really, I'm really grateful that this veterano took the time to sit and speak with me. And actually, we could have gone for hours because he's that generous and that kind and that loving and that supportive. And so, but this is just a small snippet of, um, I think what's possible with him. He, um, so as his Hispanic Heritage Month begins, his voice shines a light on certain aspects of our communities. Um, those of us who disrupt the public relations ethos of this month of heritage. So, um, so if you're not as familiar with uh, Luis J. Rodriguez, um, so he is, he's, so Luis Rodriguez served as the official poet laureate of Los Angeles um, for Luis poetry, a soul talk, a prophetic act, a wonderful means to engage and enlarge one's presence in the world. 
Luis is also a novelist, memoirist, short story writer, children's book writer, essayist, as well as a community and urban peace activist, mentor, healer, youth and arts advocate, husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He has 16 books in all genres, including the best-selling memoir, Always Running La Vida Loca, Gang Days in LA. His latest memoir is the sequel, It Calls You Back, An Odyssey Through Love, Addiction, Revolutions, and Healing. His last poetry book is Borrowed Stones from Curbstone Books, Northwestern University Press. In 2020, Seven Stories Press released his first book of essays, From Our Land to Our Land, Essays, Journeys, and Imaginings from a Native Chicanex Writer. Luis is founding editor of Tiachucha Press, now for over 30 years and co-founder of Tiachucha's Centro Cultural and Bookstore in the San Fernando Valley, now in its 20th year. He's traveled across the United States, Canada, Mexico, Central America, South America, Europe, and Japan to speak, do poetry readings, indigenous ceremonies, and reportage over the last 40 years. And actually, his trips to Japan really revealed a fascination in Japan of Cholo culture, much deeper than appropriation, like read the book just for that, um, that set of musings and reflections. Um, his travel includes prisons, jails, and juvenile lockups around in around 20 U.S. states and in Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Argentina, Italy, and England. Dedicated to his indigenous roots and Native American spirituality, Luis has a Mexican name, Mitzcoatl Itzlacuilo, with his wife Trini Tlacejo Teol. Has, he has a podcast called The Hummingbird Cricket Hour. Check it out. It's really good. Luis is a dedicated, clean, balanced, abundant, cooperative, healing world. He's dedicated to those things. Sorry. No more capitalist, private property relations, exploitation, war, or inequities. In essential things, quote, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, compassion. From August 31st to November 24th, 2019, Casa 0101 um, Theater in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, co-sponsored by Tia Chucha's Centro Cultural, staged the play Always Running based on Luis's best-selling memoir of the same name. Seats were sold out every weekend. Co-adapted by Luis J. Rodriguez and Hector Rodriguez, directed by Hector Rodriguez, the play explored the dramatic tension between a youth worker trying to mentor a highly troubled gang member from violence, drugs, and jails to become an artist, writer, and social justice activist. Set in the late 1960s and 70s during the height of the Chicano movement in the Los Angeles area, the play is now available for licensing. So, uh, Poet Laureate Rodriguez has gotten praise from Bruce Springsteen, from the poet Joy Harjo, from the great um, Chicana author Sandra Cisneros. And if you go to his website, luisjrodriguez.com, you can just get a taste of all of the things that this amazing human is engaged with. This was a healing conversation for me, and I hope it's a healing conversation for you. So. Um, it is with that that I bring you episode six of Habitually Disruptive, Luis J. Rodriguez. Hey, yo, good morning, everybody. Well, I guess it, I guess it's morning for me right now, but because we're in this podcasting time warp, uh, it may not be morning when you uh, when you hear this. So, so I'm hoping that whenever morning comes for you, it is a good morning. Uh, my name is Gerardo Munoz. 
he, him, his. I am the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and you are on Habitually Disruptive. Um, I am so thrilled. Like, I don't even, like, I, like uh, I almost fainted when I heard back from the individual that you're about to hear from right now, um, because this brother, this veterano who has so much wisdom has agreed to share his story and his idea and his thoughts with us today. I would like to welcome Mr. Luis J. Rodriguez. Uh, you may know him from books such as Always Running, um, as Hearts and Hands. His uh, most recent collection of essays uh, we're going to talk about in a little bit here as well, but as well as some other things. But Luis, welcome to Habitually Disruptive. Well, you know, I'm so grateful to hear from you. So I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Oh man, it's it, this is going to be so much fun. So, um, so we, we, you know, our our whole focus on this podcast is to talk a little bit about uh, patterns that we see in society and ways that we disrupt them. Um, and you are someone who's been um, a very disruptive presence in my life, and in, in such a good way. <laughs> and I'll share two places where I found. Um, where I found the most important disruptions in my life that came from your work. Uh, the first was when I read Always Running. Um, and that, that book named so many experiences that were familiar to me from my own growing up uh, here in, in Denver's East Side. And, uh, and then the other was Hearts and Hands. Um, that one came out, I actually met you, you signed it. It was so cool. Um, I still have it on my wall. Uh, my kids are still excited when we share, uh, when I share with them excerpts from the book to see that you signed it and you wrote my name. Like, he knows your name, Munoz. I'm like, yeah, he knows my name. <laughs> um, but that was a really powerful book because at the time I was teaching in a community uh, where the young people had been exposed to violence too early and too often. And it gave so many wonderful ways uh, to talk about those. So Luis, I just thank you um, in advance for disrupting my life in so many ways. Um, I'm glad I could do it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, we're going to hop, hop right in. Um, so do, do you consider yourself a disruptor? Well, you know, I have to say if you, especially if you read Always Running, I was very mm -hmm. unsatisfied with the world that I was born into. Yeah. And some people are unsatisfied for craziest reasons, but I was, I had a, maybe, I don't know if it's a genetic memory. I had a strong sense of justice growing up. Yeah. I was pissed off when people weren't <laughs> fair. You know? Yeah. And we <laughs> right. lived in a world that wasn't fair. So that's with your own family. Yeah. It's not fair the way they treated, you know, certain members of the family. If you were lighter yeah. skinned Mexican, you were treated yeah. better than dark skin. All this that's stuff right. comes up. That's right. And I was very sensitive to these things. And then mm -hmm. uh, being in the community, the discrimination, we started school in Watts. So yep. I lived in a mostly black community, uh, which was actually fine. I didn't have yep. problem with my neighbors. It was the school. The school's mm. awful, mostly white teachers. They treated yep. everybody badly. Uh, I didn't, didn't know what to do with me because I couldn't speak English. They were pissed off that I was Spanish yeah. speaking. Yeah. And then they put me in a corner for a year building blocks because they didn't have time for me. Wow. Uh, I got swatted when I spoke Spanish because I was supposed to be wrong. Anyway, right. you, you grow up in a world that's unfair. And yeah. so then some people probably live with it. Some people ignore it. I couldn't. I never could. And I think that's the disruptive part of me. Even yeah. when I was going to um, high school, uh, I dropped out initially yeah. and uh, yeah. because it just wasn't fair. Nothing was right about the school. The yeah. lessons they were teaching, even if I didn't know the facts, I knew they weren't about me. They were yeah. about 
white power, supremacy, manifest destiny, yeah, all the history period. books. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, like, absolutely. You know, I, I don't want to go to school. I, I learned through the activists in the Chicano movement to go back to yeah. school, which I did, yep. and to be active in the schools, to try to make them better, to bring our history and our stories and to help uh, others. So that's where I think my disruptive aspects, my life started. I've been, I'm yeah. almost 70 years old, actually. I'm not too far away from wow. 70. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, uh, I've been disrupted ever since. So, yeah. Yeah. So it must have meant a lot um, growing up around. So if, if I'm doing the math a little bit, then you were you're probably old enough to have pretty clear memories of the, of the movimiento and, you know, kind was, of what was happening. Not only that, I got accidentally caught up in it. Accidentally Did that you? I I wasn't a part of the East LA blowouts. Uh, right. be, but I ended up um, walking out of school. I was yeah. in middle school. Yeah. I was 13 years old and I walked wow. out with five five of us. So we yep. weren't part of the big blowouts all over East LA. We were just outside the East LA area. So okay. but we walked out, five of us. Said, hey, let's walk wow. out. And we all got suspended. You were know, <laughs> the only five that walked out of your you school. You were only five that walked out. Everybody was <laughs> looking amazing. at us from the fences. Some were laughing. <laughs> what and, what are those we kids were, doing? <laughs> I know. So it yeah. was it was important. So and then I also got caught up in the Chicago moratorium. I got arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I got active in the what I would call uh, the radical thinking um, part of the Chicano movement. What I mean, radical yeah. is that they were the ones questioning the whole system. Yeah, there was Chicanos that wanted to be in the system, which is fine. Sure. You know how they just wanted to be part yep. of the system. And I, some of them are good friends of mine. Some of them are politicians. Sure. I know. Sure. But there was a group of, of Chicanos that was saying this whole system is wrong. And, you know, now people yeah. are talking about systemic change. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting how it's beginning to be challenged yeah. on a bigger level. Yeah, the parallels level. are so interesting. Yeah, but I'm glad that I was part of that because you were more critical, as you know, as a teacher. It required more critical thinking to think about systems, not just right. thinking about fixing this, fixing that, but how can you get to the root of what's really the problem yeah. in any society? Yeah. It's such a, that's such a powerful thing to me because I, you know, to your point, I do think that a lot of the ideas that are being discussed um, in social media, but also beyond um, are sort of, you know, we do see the cycles and we do see some of the same consciousness from, from that era reemerging. And, and I hope that younger folks understand what a blessing it is to, to still have so many veteranos from that time that we can actually like listen to and learn from and get perspective from um, your, your, it's interesting because, um, you know, I've, I've, excuse me, I've, I've been blessed enough to be familiar with your work, um, with your, with your writing um, and uh, something about everything you've ever written, I, I feel completely seen by the things mm. that you write, whether it was always running. Um, and I think that, you know, in in that gang environment, like I grew up in a similar environment, I think we may have played different roles in, in that environment, but understanding that here's a Chicano identifying person who understands the environment that that I'm growing up in. And I also grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. I always joke with my friends mm-hmm. that I didn't actually know another Mexican that wasn't family until like high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like every Mexican yeah. I knew was a cousin, you know, how you have the your tios that show up to visit and then they stay for three months. <laughs> we had yeah, yeah. we had that at times. Um but yeah. so that definitely shaped me. Um but I I just finished reading from our land to our land which is a collection of your reflections, thoughts, and essays. And, um, and what a beautiful piece. And the thing that I've, that kept resonating for me is how 
your consciousness has continued to move with the times. Like you are one of the only veteranos I know who uses the term Latinx and who is recognizing these conversations that are happening today. What's that process for you when it comes to staying plugged in with current thinking, but maintaining your own experiential knowledge and roots and wisdom? Well, I found that when young people were starting to challenge even the word Chicano, yeah, some of them were doing it from a very good point, not necessarily a bad point. Right. Some of them were just saying that it didn't really address women and didn't address queer situation mm -hmm. realities mm -hmm. that we're all yes. in. So one good thing about being a founder, co-founder with my wife, Tia Chucha, Centro Cultural, yeah. this is 20 years we've been there. We've had all these young people in there and they're really critically thinking radical youth. That's what I love about them. Uh, a lot of queer youth, a lot of youth who are ostracized from their own families, all Mexicans and Central Americans. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have some African-Americans that come in. We work with, uh, like one of our board members of Vietnamese who grew up in the neighborhood. Yeah. He might as well be yeah. Chicano, you know? Yeah, might as well. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we have, uh, uh, you know, whites that support us and we work with them, but mostly it's Mexican, Central American. And these youth are coming in with like gangbusters, man. They're like, what yeah. great ideas are fired up. And that's we so found, true. we give them a space to be creative, mm -hmm. to make things happen. And that's what's helped me because a lot of, I found a lot of elder, olders, they've detached from the youth somehow. Yeah. You know, they maybe they get too nostalgic about the past. I have yeah. that, those memories too. Sure. But I think we have to keep adapting. And as, a, as an older person, I realize I'm not going to be young. That's not my point. I'm not right. going to be like these young people, but I don't want to dismiss or dishonor what young people bring to the struggle, yeah. you know, and, and to also give them space to recreate that world. That's what yeah. they're doing. Chica yeah. next, Latin next to me is just recreating things that we established, yeah. but there was nothing wrong with that. And, and yeah. who knows a few years from now, it'll be another name. Right. You know, you have to recreate and reimagine everything all the time. That's yeah. why I get weird when people get stuck on things. They think tradition, tradition is meant to be adaptable and change, you know. Right. But yeah. people make it like a stilted thing. You get stuck That's with it and true. you can bang people overhead. No, I think young people bring that good energy to keep moving things forward. Yeah. That was so much of what you're saying is resonating with me. I've been teaching for 22 years. And while I am really dreading coming back to school this year, you know, and it's not because I don't want to do the work and it's not because I don't believe in the work of being a teacher. It's just we're, we're in this, um, this epoch, this moment of our human existence that is really anxious and scary and so but but what you say really resonates is the you know one thing I don't always get with my own peers is a sense of optimism and a sense of possibility mm -hmm. and I think young people bring so much optimism and sense of possibility like they have I mean and it's cliche to say it but they haven't become as jaded as I have become in some ways yeah. um and in a way they kind of help me renew my spirit a lot uh it's you know I think of um one of my favorite songs is the song Glory uh, that was recorded by Common and John Legend for the Selma soundtrack. And that wonderful verse where it says it takes the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. And uh, and I would also say it takes the wisdom of the young people and, and the elders energy, because like for us, you know, as people who are significantly older than some of these young people, sometimes their insights energize us. That's absolutely true. I'm really glad you said that because 
you know, I, I'm a retirement age. I'm actually 67. So I'm getting close to 70. Okay. I'm not quite there. Yeah. But uh, I tell people I'm not retiring. I'm refiring. Oh, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I don't want to be retired, forgotten, nah. irrelevant. But yeah. when you retire as an older person, you, you, when you refire as an older person, yeah. it's a different kind of fire. Yeah, it's not quite the same. Tell me about that fire. Tell me about that fire. I think this fire has has a little bit more wisdom in it. It's more precise. There's something Mm. about when you're young, you're just getting out there and you're putting things out there, and some will go well and some won't. You're learning. I've learned, I think, to being be more precise in my fire, more careful, but also more still. um, That I think, what would you call it? The depth of it is more than just the breadth of it. You know what I mean? And I think that's uh, something you get when you're older. And I'm glad me and my wife both of us work together very carefully. She's actually a year older than me. And um, we're trying to carry that and working with these young people. What we did, just so you know, is we turned over Thea Chuchis, which me and her started. She ran it every day for 40 to 60 hours a week. For a second, let me let me fix oh. my audio. <laughs> okay, okay. You're good. Technology. We were talking about technology. And yeah. this is the life of technology. All right, hold on. Let me just do this one thing. Sometimes there's only one way to do this. Okay, let's try that again. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I heard you. Uh, I still can't hear me. uh... Sometimes it jumps to my phone, even when I'm not doing anything with my phone. Okay. Okay. You're good. Let's try this again. Okay. How about now? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can I you hear me? Hear you. Ah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm going to pause recording for a second. Day, day by day. Oops. Sorry yeah. about that. Oh, okay. We'll do it again. Uh, yeah, my wife and I started Thea Chuchas about 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. she ran everything. She was the director. She worked 40 to 60 hours a week. Yeah. She mentored the young people. She hired people. She, I was the outreach. I was doing uh, the board of president. Uh, my name was more out there than hers, but she really was the one making it happen. And what yeah. she did is she mentored over 17 years when she finally stopped being the director. She mentored all these young people. Some of them were coming out of high school. And now yeah. they're still wow. with us. They're in their mid-30s to early, their late 30s now. It's amazing. And we hired them. We hired them to run Thea Chucha. So about... Three or four years ago, my wife and I decided to turn everything over to them. Wow. And, and again, it's to, it's to trust how wise young people are, yeah. how quick they can learn when they don't know something, yeah. and how you, you just know they're going to take it to the next level. And that's, that's right. where we're at. So I think yeah. that's important for olders, elders to see is you got to, but mentoring was an important part of it. We had to train these young people, but we also had to say, now you're on your own. You go, they go beyond us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's where we're at with these young people. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Tiachuchas because I think I first learned about Tiachuchas when you came to Denver. Um, you know, reading from Hearts and Hands and and talking about creating community in violent times. And man, who would have known that a book that I believe you published in 2004 would have Actually, so yeah, around that time. Yeah. I think it was 04. Um, and I and I have it right here, just you know, got got my receipts. Here it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, who would have known that a book that was so specific about such a specific moment in time um would circle back and we keep talking about cycles. 
uh, to being relevant today because we're living in violent times today, arguably more violent than back then. And um, but you mentioned Tia Chuchas and Tia Chuchas sounded like a dream come true for me. Like I want a Tia Chuchas here in Denver. Talk about what what is Tia Chuchas? Um, what led you from being this very accomplished and successful writer to say, you know what, I want to do more. I want to do something for the community. Well, I think we're going back to that seed of disruption from when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. I've carried it ever since. And so uh, always running monetarily helped me a lot. Yeah. You know? And and so what do you do with that? I know writers who bought Lexus swimming pools. That's fine. I don't want that. Yeah, mm. I, I, I don't got a swimming pool. I got a nice old Chevy <laughs> Shonic and we got a Honda. We're fine. There you, you know, go. <laughs> what we decided to put the money into was the center. And mm. it was the idea that, you know what, the community that we came back to, because we were in Chicago, both me and my wife, I was there for 15 years. We came back to LA where she grew up. The Northeast San Fernando Valley is the okay. second largest Mexican community after East LA. Gotcha. And so uh, it was empty. There was no cultural spaces. There was no art galleries. There were yeah. no movie houses. Yep. There was no bookstores. It's a half a million people here. Wow. And as you know, like any barrio, we're missing all these great spaces. Yeah. The yep. Chicano movement had one thing is that it always worked around culture. Songs mm-hmm. came out of there. Poets came out of there. Art, murals, as you know, murals everywhere. Culture cafes. This is part of the whole East LA Chicano scene. And then when I was in Chicago, that's what also revitalized a lot of the after the deindustrialization, Chicago yeah. got revitalized with arts and cafes. And so I brought that spirit right. back. And that's what we wanted to do. And it's become a, a base of operations for the most radical thinkers, for the most culturally involved. We also were very clear to establish it on indigenous philosophy. Yes. Uh, native Mexican, but Mexica, but also native to this country, the indigenous peoples of this country. And yeah. we have established that just to give people a profound sense of who they are. You know, Chicanos, Mexicanos, we're layered with a bunch of colonial yeah. uh, oppressions and things. And I don't deny any of it. I tell people, right. listen, I know I'm a U.S. citizen. I know I am Chicano. I know that I'm Mexican uh, up to a point, you know, not as a nation state, but I'm Mexican right. by culture. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I know I have all kinds of races in me, but what the deepest part of me is the indigenous. Yeah. And with all those layers, I don't want to lose that profound depth. So that's yeah. what we wanted to bring out. And the kids are hungry for it. As you can imagine, yeah. they're all hungry to know who they are, how deep their brown skin takes them, how yeah. deep their own culture is, because they don't get told these things. You know, they're treated yeah. as immigrants when they have, they've been part of this land as long as anyone. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's important for them to know. Yeah. That's what, you know, that, that piece is also, man, so, so many threads I want to pull on from that statement that are so beautiful. I think that the, um, the reestablishment of our relationships with our indigenous past, um, and, you know, to be fair, indigenous present, um, those have revealed so many other layers to who we are, to your point. Um, the, uh, you know, for me, when people, you know, you get that inevitable question, like, well, what's your background anyway? And I think what it comes down to for me is to identify as a descendant of the original people of the Americas. Um, And there's a lot of other stuff going on there, but you write about this in From Our Land to Our Land. And it makes me kind of, so some of what I've picked up from your work and from talking with you is that there are these relationships 
that you have cultivated across time and space um, and difference in location. Um, I, I'm curious about this kind of triangular thing I'm picturing, um, LA area, um, the reservation and Chicago. Can you talk about those, your relationships to those places and how those have maintained a sense of disruption in your life? Or well, just what they've meant to you in general. Sure. I mean, one thing is LA and Chicago are the two most industrialized cities of the country. People don't That's know right. that. They mm -hmm. always think about Detroit and Pittsburgh, those industrial yeah. cities. But yeah, LA had I actually had more manufacturing than any other city. But we also got impacted with the deindustrialization really yeah. hard. Now, yeah. what happened is a lot of the poorest communities lost its lifeblood, which was industry, yeah. steel mills and auto yeah. plants, whatever it might be. And uh, the gangs, which were street kids, became more cohesive and organized That's right. That's because right. drugs came in at the same time. You know, it's, people don't understand that in the 80s when most of the plants were leaving, cocaine and crack, crack in particular, became a big deal. Yeah. I don't think it's by accident. I can't prove it. it you, have, you just add the, you know, how do you say, yeah. you just put the facts together, you figure it out yeah. that drugs would come in when there wasn't enough work. That's and right. then, of course, the gangs become stronger and better organized. Yeah. When I was in a gang, as hard as things were, and we all suffered, we weren't really organized crime groups. Right. There was an organized end to everything, organized crime yeah. end. But we were just kids trying to find our way, initiations and trying yeah. to belong, all these things, family. Uh, but pretty soon everything became about the money, drug, and then the or the criminal end of it became highly enterprise, bigger enterprise. Right. So yeah. I, I had to talk about all these things because all those contributed to cities like Chicago and LA having the two worst gang problems in the country, yeah. totally related to industry yep. and deindustrialization. Now yeah. the indigenous thing came in because in, as a Chicano, we always try to emphasize the indigenous, but we didn't really know what we were talking about, as you That's know. Right. 50, 40 years ago, nobody really knew. Over the years, many people do know. There's a lot of Mexica elders that stepped up. Teachings are all over Mexico, but also they came to the U.S. We have danzante groups. We had a bunch of capulis that teach things. Yeah. They know the Nahuatl language. They know the calendario. They actually know stuff. Uh, and I hooked up with some Mexicas in Chicago. I have to mention one guy named, um, well, my friend, Frank Blasquez, Chicano guy who was a, 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 an addict for years. We were both in recovery. We became good friends and we both went to the Native American Center and went to Native American sweat lodges. And then we also met with a lot of Mexicas. We met this one guy named Maquitoshli, who was a Mexicano who mm -hmm. ran an auto shop in Pilsen, mm -hmm. the barrio there. No way. <laughs> and we went in there with our car and we started talking about Mexica stuff and he heard us. And he came up oh, to us wow. and says, hey, I want to show you what I know. He had this whole paperwork notebooks about the calendario, the sunstone and everything. Wow. And he became our teacher and he hooked up Man. with teachers out of Mexico. So in other words, it just worked out. This search uh, found a beautiful harbor yeah. with the Mexica people and also with Native Americans. I would go to Native American conference in Wisconsin, Chicago, mm -hmm. other parts. And in the beginning, <laughs> they were all welcoming, except when there was a movement against the Hispanics. I don't know if you if you ever involved in that 20, 25 years ago, they like trying to get rid of all the Hispanics out of the Native American stuff. But yeah. my issue was that I I'm, I looked more Indian than many of them, many of them because there's a lot of light-skinned Indians which I have no problem yeah. with. You know, yeah, they're natives, blue-eyed, I don't care. 
But yeah. when they start going against Hispanics, I go, wait a minute, a border comes in and now we mm -hmm. can't see our relationships. We can't right. see we're family. Yeah. Uh, luckily for me, most Native Americans were quite embracing. They accepted. Yeah. They were quite open. I yeah. have lifelong friends out of those communities in that work. And so, and for the most part, they accepted us. Now, I get that as indigenous migrants, Mexicanos, Central Americans, most of them don't even know they're indigenous. There's an right. issue there. Yep. And I don't think we want recognition from the government. We're not looking to take away any of the sovereignty issues that actual Native Americans have in this country. They have nation to nation issues that have to be dealt with. We don't want to be in the way of that. But when it comes to culture and ceremony, we're very much part of it. I think somebody said that uh, of all the sun dancers, 75% are believed to be Chicanos. Wow. We're getting very active in yeah. what it is to be indigenous. So I think yeah. that's the good part of it, not to take away from the actual native tribes and nations here, but to yeah. add as indigenous migrants. And then of course, yeah. as you know, a lot of migrants from Mexico and Central America don't even speak Spanish. That's right. There's Zapotecos, there's Mestecos, there's yeah. Nahuatl speakers, there's Mayans from Guatemala yep. and Yucatan right. and Chiapas, whatever. There are yeah. from El Salvador. There's so many coming up now that now you have to consider indigenous migrants now. So yeah. It, yeah. It, it complicates it, but it also says how rich we are as a people. Yeah. I mean, and I think as a comunidad, one of the things that I'm hoping that we reflect on as as we dive deeper into you know this this journey this kind of search for self is uh, this idea of this reckoning that I think we we need to have as raza as Latinx people as yeah. as Chicana Chicano people yeah. Chicanx uh, to understand that it is kind of a contentious relationship right because on the one hand we do have this relationship. I'm so glad you shouted out Zapotecos and Mixtec, but like that was my abuelita. She was yeah, yeah, yeah. a full-blood uh, Zapoteca. And That's I have great. a theory that she barely spoke Spanish. And she, you know, she went to be with the ancestors when I was about seven. And so never really had it. We, we had a, we had a relationship that was defined by candy. And so when she would come wow. and visit from Mexico, she would just hand me like little candies, like secretly, because my mother would not allow that. Um, but, you know, Mexico, so Mexico had the best candies, too. Oh, man, that's, that's not even close, <laughs> not even close, you know. But yeah, so I mean, I, I and I think on the one hand, we do have that heritage. And on the other hand, I think we've struggled, you know, as a as a raza to really understand what our indigenous uh, ancestors and neighbors have experienced. So I, th I think, but I think having you, you know, voice this and sort of talk about it does kind of force a contentious conversation that I think is really important for growth. It's a critical conversation. And uh, one thing that I did do, it's in my, one of my essays, I did do my DNA, but I wanted to say mm. something about that. When I put it in the essay book, the DNA among Northern Mexicans wasn't that well done by them but now there's right. so many of them so yeah. they readjusted it <clears throat> so okay. readjusted makes more sense yeah. now i'm half native okay 40 percent from spain okay which was not originally there and then the rest is other european and close to five percent from africa that to wow. be really reflects the northern mexican reality yeah now i now yeah. i feel like they got the interaction between people. But, and so I can tell people I'm half native, which is more than most native Americans can get a card for. Yeah. Again, I'm not against, there's a lot of full blood and we have great full blood and uh, Navajos sure. who adopted us. We love everybody. But in other words, you can get a card for, I think one ace being native. Yeah. And, and uh, I, that's fine. I've had no problem with that, yeah. but I actually have a lot more native. Now 
Does that mean um, that I forget or don't understand the Spanish side of my past? I can't. It's colonial. It's it added to the, the machista traditions in my family. You know, all these yeah. things that we grew up with, you have yeah. to be aware of it. But I, I don't abide by that. You know what I mean? But I don't deny it. I can't. I right. can't deny being a U.S. citizen. I can't deny any of um, I can't deny being a former steel worker or a writer right. or even a social right. justice activist. It's all part of me. So one yeah. of my elders, as I said in my essay book, did point out that, you know, that's all interesting. But when it comes to race, that's really a white mentality thing. No Native really counted blood. That's only what happens in this world. So he says, we are whole and complete as you are. That to me was a beautiful concept. Wow. It doesn't matter you're part Spanish. It doesn't matter you have this or that. You're whole and complete as you are. It's interesting because yeah. it's entertaining. It's good to know, but yeah. don't let it, you, there's no this blood, that blood. There's You're a limit a to how much it defines you, right? It doesn't exactly. fully define We're you. We're not fractured people. That's why that's I don't right. like to use that's the right. word mestizaje anymore. I used to use it, but uh, I don't use it. First of all, because it comes out of the Spanish casta system. That's right. They were, yeah. And then, so I don't like that. And second of all, because again, it still fractures us. Yeah. And I don't think we need to be fractured. I think we'll be, right. we're aware of all the colonial history, 500 years. I mean, it's going to change things. But I'm also, again, making a conscious decision to go to my indigenous, like a lot of Native Americans have done. Some of them, yeah. like I said, got blue eyes. Some of them are black. I have this great uh, uh, black Indian woman who does ceremony, does beautiful wow. Indian songs. She's, she's, she knows she's Native, but she's black yeah. too. And so she yeah. doesn't deny either part of it. So we're, we're together in this understanding why we go to our indigenous, not yeah. to take away from anything else. Yeah, yeah, it, that's that's so important because you know as we talk about racial identity as a as a construction, it's a social construct. It's a construction, like obviously it's a it's a construct that still defines many of our experiences and yeah. and puts barriers in our ways and all that kind of thing. But this higher consciousness, like it, it sounds like the way you approach this. Is a, is a more spiritual and holistic kind of approach to identity, that identity is, yes, these biological and genealogical realities, but it's also the spirit that moves you and yeah. the things that you've been involved with. So I would imagine that a lot of the, this is what happens a lot in our community. Um, but, and when I talk about our community, I'm just talking about our rasa, those of yeah. us who are engaged and really like spend a lot of time thinking about identity yeah. is, we tend to have this conversation that just ends with labels, right? Well, I go by this and you go by that. And I can't be with you because I'm a, yeah, I'm a Latinx right. and you're a Hispanic yeah. and I can, we're not, I, I imagine that exactly. you would love to disrupt that whole cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think again, that's, I would have to say a white supremacist origin. I'm not saying that everybody uses it as a white supremacist, but yeah. it has its origins there, dividing people, naming people. And because, okay, here's a goofy thing that I mentioned in my book of essays. When I'm born in El Paso, Texas, oh, yeah. Yeah. my mother's Raramuri. You know, yeah. my father has got some black from Guerrero. These are the Tarumara, some, these yeah. are the runners. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. we're white. Yeah. Every Latinx person in Texas is white. Is white. Some of them could be black. It doesn't matter. They're all white. So it's like, it's a made up thing. The whole thing's yeah. made up. And it's we fall into this label being, which is all made up. And again, this is why somebody said, why do you use Chicanx? Why don't you? Because I said, look, it, that's my choice, my term. I'm determining for myself. I'm not yeah. pushing on nobody. And like I said, a few years from now, it'll probably be another term. Right. We shouldn't get hung up on these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I've gotten Hispanic Heritage Awards. I'm not yeah. going to get up and 
complain. Oh, you <laughs> dare? How dare you call me Hispanic? You know? yeah. I don't use that term. It's not a term yeah. I prefer. I wouldn't use it. But I'm not going to yeah. go crazy about it because, again, they're all yeah. made up terms. Everything. So it's just yeah. it's a matter of knowing that history and where we're going. More to me is where we're going. I think yeah. we're going to a place in which everybody belongs, no matter the nation state. We're no longer imprisoned. That's what we're imprisoned by. Mm. And we had going to a point in which the nation state no longer imprisons us. For example, I've been in Central America for over 28 years. El yeah. Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Um, they're almost the same people as Southern Mexicans. They're very close. Some Mayan, a lot of Mayan, but also others. And yet they can't stand each other as people. They fight each other. Yeah. When the soccer right. game between Mexico and El Salvador, they're yeah. like, ah, yep. okay, that's all good. I'm There's not, a whole I'm not soccer saying, war be... that happened yeah. between Salvador and Honduras. Yeah, Honduras, the whole war, people got killed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing is, Okay, I'm I'm okay with you being proud of being Mexican Salvadorian, but I also say there's a point when you got to say we're the same people. Yeah. You know, at a certain point we can't be like divisive so much that we can't yeah. see each other anymore. That's, right. That's where I think it's important because we got imprisoned by the nation state, which was made, which was a made up concept during a certain period of capitalism yeah. and the development yeah. of home markets and all kinds of things that yeah. people just got to see. It's a recent thing, and it's almost yeah. going away now. But we're, we're in prison. Like, for example, these poor people from Honduras had two giant hurricanes yeah. um, in 2019-2020, I think it was those years. And two huge ones. They couldn't leave their country. They had to leave as criminals, you know, going from one country to another, passing through Guatemala and to Mexico, trying yeah. to come to the United States, get treated like the worst people. And I go, yeah. these people have to leave. Yeah. It's famine. And when there's famine in Africa, people die because yeah. they can't be... They can't leave unless they're refugees and they're dying as refugees. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We don't do what we used to do, which is migrate to better conditions all the time. We've lost yeah. that ability to belong to the whole world. Yeah. I, I remember in uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara writes about uh, fronteras que son ilusorias, ficticias, exactly. that they're illusions, they're fictions. And that really um, touched me because, you know, and you look at this world that we're living in, you and I are a time zone away from each other, right? Where, you know, in pre-COVID, I wouldn't have ever dreamt that it could be in a conversation with you. And now we're able to do this. And I, I, I know that you have friends all over the world. I have connections all over the world. And so what, what do borders really mean um, in terms of our human connection now? What they do mean is exclusion and harm when they're reinforced against certain right. people nationalism yeah nationalism now we're the best nation where everybody else does belong i mean right. i find that culture like hip-hop is one way where it's spread oh out you speak in my language now uh -huh. i know hip-hop <laughs> is spoken languages all over the world it, but as you know where it started was just and it started black and brown i always tell people yeah. urban culture in the u.s is black and brown they yeah. always keep pushing the brown out yeah, uh, yep. <laughs> but hip hop, but lowrider culture, black and brown, everything. That was one of my favorite parts urban. of the book too. When you were to, when you yeah. were when you mentioned hip hop as being a black and brown art, like that. That yeah. I love that. Yeah. So keep going. I love this. It's important <laughs> for people to know that. Now I'm not taking away anything that, that blacks have contributed. Obviously, it's, no. it's tremendous, but don't take away the brown part of it. Now the the yeah. thing is with hip hop, it became the voice of the press. That's Anybody right. that had an issue, they. Um, hip-hop was a way to express it with yeah. rhythm and music and sound that was the origins of hip-hop i know hip-hop has gone through a lot of other changes and oh, so sure. it's commercialized all kinds of things. but yeah, the point definitely. is it became an international phenomenon i yeah. was interested to know the low-riding culture was very big in tokyo 
Yeah. I was in Tokyo. I have yeah, oh, yeah. to say about the Tokyo scene, but it's big in other parts of the world. Choro yeah. culture is big in, in, believe it or not, parts of Cambodia, Taiwan, of yeah. the Thailand, believe it or not. It's That's so in, interesting. And in the low writing is Brazil. It's in mm-hmm. Spain. It's So it's like yeah. culture reaches through so yeah. many ways. And then therefore, you can't just belong to one nation anymore and say, this right. is my national identity. Germany and, Ger- and Europe has one of the best hip hop scenes in the whole world. Germans. Wow. I, I, I thought it was weird, but it makes sense. Yeah. You know, and the Germans are good at it when they're in hip hop. Yeah. So anybody that feels what hip hop can do or any culture that speaks to them, they should they carry it and they make it their own. And that's what culture does. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And when you talk about German hip hop, I think about bad, but probably about 20 years ago when I discovered the music of MC Solar in, Fran- in France mm-hmm. and just listening yeah. to that stuff and saying, because I had my own stereotypes about French culture and French art. And I'm like, man, what's what's French rap going to say? Oh, this is what it sounds like. This is pretty dope, yeah. you know. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's such an important thing. You know, I'm, I'm part of um, in here in my district, we have a Latinx education caucus. And, you know, we had um, a colleague and a brother from another school who refused to join the organization because he doesn't approve of the term Latinx. And I just, I hope he hears this because for me, I agree with you. I feel like, I feel like I may choose to identify as Chicano, but I don't need anybody else to do that. And I'm not going to, because I feel like, I feel like the way you, the way a person arrives at their sense of identity is through their own real lived experiences and i think more than anything i just want to learn what their path was and and how they came to that understanding um we're gonna take a quick break and uh when we come back with luis rodriguez we're gonna we're gonna have him talk a little bit about the victories that he thinks um will be coming in the uh in the short term and the long term and um and then we will uh, have a little bit of fun so stay with us on habitually disruptive If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have experienced expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash 2 teachers. That's patreon.com slash 2 teachers.
Hey, what's up, people? Uh, I'm Gerardo Munoz. You are back with Habitually Disruptive. And uh, we're having this, like, I don't, I'm not even going to call it a conversation. I feel like I'm having this spiritual experience um, with uh, Luis J. Rodriguez, author of 16 books, and uh, including uh, From Our Land to Our Land, and uh, Always Running, among many, many other books. And I, I, I want to comment on some of the books. One, one of the questions I always have as a wannabe writer is um, how one gets to the point where you're able to write 16 books. Like that's, that's like some real stuff. Um, what, what is it about? And, and also considering your life path, the various um, experiences you've had, the relationships you've made, the traumas you've experienced, uh, mentioning a person that you are a person who dropped out of high school. How does someone from that path become the author of 16 books? <laughs> I think that's, that's a disruption true. right there. <laughs> that's is. a disruption. And, and it, it's disruption from what people expect of you. You know, right. as a Chicano body of care gang member yeah. on drugs, I was expected to be nothing but a prisoner that's or right. dead or expected. I, yep. a lot of my friends ended up that way, which is understandable. I was disrupting even that part of the world. You know, yeah. I was disrupting the world that says I needed to work my whole life, like my family, not go nowhere. But I was also disrupting that world that says I had to be a drug addict and a prisoner all my life. Yeah. Um, I'm nothing against prisoners, nothing against drug addicts. I just no, know, definitely not. Yeah. I know the kind of traps they are. And so yeah. I had to disrupt even all those things. And it wasn't easy because I was into drugs and I was in, in jails and, and um, I was a, a very troubled young man. But I think that the idea is to keep liberating yourself from all the prisons. There's many prisons that we're in. Yeah. And even when I was working class, and I have working class still, but now it's more mental, intellectual labor. Uh, yeah. When I was working in steel mills and I was working in foundries and I was working in construction, um, I even had to transcend that at a certain point, you know, because yeah. again, those jobs were leaving. And um, I decided I'm going to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer and I went to journalism went to work in East LA newspapers and eventually I went to a summer program for minority journalists I got a yeah. certificate I never finished college never got a degree wow. and then I started working daily newspapers and then I started working in news radio I've been that opened the door and then at a certain point I was uh, deciding that I wanted to also do poetry and fiction because yeah. I love reading all those books I decided not to be imprisoned by anything um, mm. and I'll tell you something I tell people I'm an average IQ. And people say, well, you must be a genius. Well, everybody's got <laughs> a genius, but the average person, everybody's got genius. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And, and that's what we're not told. We're told that only certain people got geniuses. Einstein, yeah. the poor guy, he's given off. You know, we can't be like Einstein. Well, right. nobody should ever be like Einstein, but he was his own kind of genius, just yeah. like you are your own kind of genius, and I am my own kind of genius. We're not told that we can be our own genius. So even with average intelligence, Average skills, to me, there's wonderful things that average people can do, you yeah. know, yeah. if they could stop being imprisoned by either what society says you need to do or what your parents say or what uh, your peers say, whatever it might be. Don't be imprisoned by anything. And I'm one of those people that went from one kind of prison to another, went from right. all kinds of- You're familiar to, with all kinds of prisons. Yeah. yeah. Including the, the drug and alcohol prisons, including yeah. the ones of- being a bad father prisons, whatever it may be, right, I, right. I subs superseded them, transcended them, and it didn't take a great amount of capacity other than the capacity of an average person. Wow. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, All of us I can do, do that. 
So I think that I want to emphasize to people, every one of us, and even those so-called below average, and I'm talking about people that may be disabled, are capable of so many great things. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have Stevie Wonder as a great example, guy right. born blind, doing things, right. but all kinds of people yeah. can do amazing things, even when they're so-called below average, which I think yeah. is the best way of saying it. But anyway, I'm just telling people, man, it, <laughs> it, it's carving your own life, making destiny decisions, knowing what your purpose is. That's innate. I don't mean purpose somebody yeah. else gives you. And then yeah. knowing how to keep going through it no matter what. And of course, you fail, you fail, you fail. That's part of life. Right. People give up. Some people don't even want to fail, so they don't try. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go through all that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just um I, I would offer that maybe if you know you kind of outline that there that there are so many things about you that you see as average, I, w- I would say that you're spiritually exceptional because I think that and maybe it's a matter of choice, right? Like we either choose to lead with our hearts or we don't. We either choose to let ourselves feel things and we don't. And maybe it's a matter of you've chosen to allow yourself to feel things um, where others maybe don't make that choice. Um, I think that's a good way of saying it because here's the thing. <laughs> choice to me is part of the equation. <laughs> it's like I tell people, we even got to choose to grow up. At a certain that's point, true. it's a choice. Yeah, you might be Aging, growing up developmentally, well, but- What's that great quote? Um, There's a quote (laughs) that goes, uh, aging is mandatory, maturing is um, optional. (laughs) Right. I think that's a good, in other words, there is choice there and that's important. And I don't think it's about choice whether I'm going to be bad guy or good guy. Right. That's limited. It's binaries that people make up. I think it's a choice of whether I'm going to live a full life to what my capacity is. And if you don't know what your capacity is, you're in trouble, but that's part of the struggle. Get to know. And then say, I'm going to live as full as I can. Does that mean I'm going to win every prize? I'm going to win every battle? No. It doesn't mean that at all. But you win the necessary ones, the ones you need to. I've been through so many different things, and um, I'm still here. And I'm still here in a better way than I was before. So let's say that it's possible. I, I, I want that to be clear, because then, then when you say that I'm exceptional, which I'm okay with, it's not special, like I'm better than anybody. You know right, what I mean? Right. In that right. sense, I'm not better than anybody. Anybody sure. can do what I can do. I'm better than sure. me. But it does mm. require all these alignments, you know, yeah. between your inner being and your outer being, between appearance and essence, between who you really are and what the world wants you to be, between yeah. what needs to happen and what you want to happen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have all these alignments you have to address. Wow. That's deep. Uh, folks, I want to tell you all, this is a great time to support the Patreon so that I can hire Mr. Luis J. Rodriguez as my life coach, because I feel like I'm just like <laughs> growing right now. Um, so I want to, I want to, um, I want to ask you to look into the future a little bit. So, you know, and this can be the the idea, I, I, I have done a lot of reading of Dr. Bettina L. Love, who, you know, wrote the wonderful book, We Want to Do More Than Just Survive. And she sort of defines the abolitionist mindset as a mindset of a person who knows that they may not see victory in their lifetime, but carries themselves as though victory is right around the corner. Um, what is that victory that you think is possible that you may not see um, before you join the ancestors? Well, I, 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 let me put it this way. I think you got to carry the micro and macro together yeah. there's a macro long range thing yeah i may not see all that but social justice is an ongoing struggle 
and right. I've seen so much changes. I've yeah. seen things that I couldn't believe would ever happen. Of yeah. course, there's so much has to happen. I feel like the struggle by the white supremacists, the nationalists, the yeah. these people that are trying to, I think it's like their last throws, yeah. which is why they're into the lie fabrication area they completely yeah. make a world i keep now. thinking that but man they seem yeah. to they seem to have one last like they, they're not, in them. <laughs> they're not going away easy yeah uh, but you i can see them like they're they're in a fantasy world yeah. and unfortunately many republicans fell into it i'm not yeah. saying all of them but enough of them whereas yeah. like the world is in one fantasy world and there's another world that's yeah. trying to adjust to the world well, and especially in the way that these folks choose to show up you know, yeah. you know, when you when you talk about Republicans, it's one of those things where I don't know what is in your heart, but I know how you are showing up in important issues of life and death for certain people. Yeah. And that's kind of what yeah. we're seeing. Yeah. And so I think that it's when you're at the point where you have to fabricate everything, you're you're like really pulling on straws now. Yeah, uh, I think that world is starting to shift. We will shift away from that world yeah. and it's going to be a battle. It's not going to be easy. Right. But I started seeing it already. Um, what is the world that we're entering? I think there's a world that what I call where everyone belongs. It's another concept. What kind of world is that? Everybody belongs. It's yeah. a world that we originated. The original mind, the original human beings was like that. Everyone yeah. belongs. And it doesn't mean you don't have your own tribal recognition or your yeah own culture or your own language some people you, some culture. people you don't get yeah. along with as well as others yeah, yeah. Absolutely. you can it's disagree human. with people but you, you you think about the shared well-being yeah. of everyone that's a different concept and that's where wow. i think i'm at where whatever i do is to contribute to the shared well-being of everyone that yeah. includes the white supremacists by the yeah. way it includes yeah. of course white people but even if they're people i don't agree with it yeah. includes them because yeah. one of the things that I really can't stand is the idea that America first, we got to take care of our family first. It's like, look at, if you take care of everyone, you're included. Yeah. You know? yeah. If you only <laughs> take care of yourself. You are part of everyone. <laughs> yeah, no. But if you only take care of yourself, you're actually not taking care of yourself. And there's a world, like with the pandemic, it was obvious that the, the more richer countries were going to handle it better. But where did the variants come from? From the poorer countries. Yeah. That they didn't they wouldn't help them when they should have. We should have yeah. all been helped. Yeah. Well, shared well-being means all of us have been helped. It didn't matter whether you had wealth or not. And yeah. now we're suffering because these variants are coming from these countries that yeah. didn't get the help when they needed it. And now they're yeah. in, in our home. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to just take care of number one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and they're getting worse in places where, to your point, there is fabricated yeah. information, there is misinformation, there is disinformation. Exactly that is meant yeah. to undermine this and we're seeing yeah. these we're seeing a reemergence of things um you know yeah. in a way that i think a lot of us hoped we wouldn't i really love this idea of um of a world where everyone belongs because yeah. it's so brilliant in its simplicity I, I think it's it's such a simple way to put it and but i think you also articulate that it's not easy because we have to right. do a lot of unlearning what is it that we need to do to take steps into that that consciousness you, you talk about the relationships that you make and i think this is absolutely true what you've done in your community work but also with your writing is that you are clearly invested of the well-being of everybody around you and i just have this comment about your books um there's such an authenticity to the music of the mill is so authentic i probably learned more 
about the ripple effects of deindustrialization from that book mm. from, and I'm a world history teacher, <laughs> but I think I learned more about the consequences of deindustrialization from those stories. And, you know, and it makes sense for you to talk about how you were a, um, a journalist and that you worked in these spaces because it just comes across as real and, and um, stepping into poetry, concrete river, I still share uh, pieces mm -hmm. of that with uh, my students. And, you know, so I, so, but what does come through is this idea that we're all connected and that, you know, and that shared well-being is a goal. So what are the steps folks should be taking to, um, engage in that? Well, I think there's uh, two things to do at the same time, probably more than two, but let's just say two. Sure. Important things. Let's say two. <laughs> One, to express the individualized gifts and power that everybody has, because mm -hmm. we need to align with collectivity. We need to align with the collective good. We need to align mm -hmm. with what's bigger. But what I find is that some people sacrifice the individual um, actualization that's needed to have full collectivization. You know what I'm saying? You Say know, more about, talk that. about collective I, things. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think there's collective issues that are big, like the yeah. well, shared well-being of everybody, making sure people's needs are met. These are yep. collective things that we should all align to. Why am I going against any of that stuff? If everybody's got good health care, universal, free, I mean, why? People go again, why? It's going to help yeah. me. It's going to help everybody. And, yeah. and, and if money is being used, let's put it there. It's being used all kinds of ways or all kinds of weird things. They're going to the moon. They're, I mean, it's like, come on, put it in places where we can actually need it. Okay, but when people think about collectivization, they forget that it also requires <laughs> highly actualized individuals. Mm. This is the dilemma or the heart of the problem, you know, because we're living in a society that says individuals are more important than collectives, right? Right. This, some yep. of these people claiming to be, oh, I'm an individual. I am free to decide not to vaccinate. Well, they're not. They're being part of a collective group that's being led by the nose. They don't realize that's that right. they're oh, still aligned so to collectivity. Yeah, they're still aligned to some so collective. True. They're not. I, I wish they were really individual, but I can't see that. See, they're just going along with somebody else's. Now, what is my collective thing? If I going along with something, I got to be very careful to make sure that it really is the fullness of the betterment of everyone, while at the same time not denying my individual um, uh, actualized life yeah. that is separate from everybody, but at the same time can't be separated from everybody. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and here's, I have a teacher who told me, because um, I told him, well, isn't that going to be contradictory? I mean, everybody lived their own life. We're the collective, but he goes, trust nature. He was very true. Mm. He says, trust nature will make it work. Mm -hmm. What really what people don't trust is nature. So they try to dominate. They do it by decree. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And that's yeah. where it doesn't work. You know, yeah. it says, uh, not that it can't work with decree, but it's just mostly it doesn't. It says, trust nature, trust human capacity, trust nature's, your own nature, the nature of nature. So in yeah. other words, trust that, that if everybody was the person they were supposed to be, their own individualized person, nobody like you, your own personal input, you still could have a collective essential connection yeah. to everyone, to society, to humanity. That I think yeah. it's the place we're trying to enter now as a yeah. world. I've thought about that a lot too, because um, I do in my classroom, I really work hard to have students understand that. I mean, and you said the words exactly, understand that they are exactly the person they're supposed to be. 
it's not my job to change their humanity or change their personality or change their spirit. It's my job to help them discover themselves and find ways to become fully actualized best versions of themselves when they are, when they are free people. And, um, and that's really different from becoming a person who just does whatever you want to, because our wants, like Harris one rapped about this, right? Our wants are the things that w- can guide us in good or bad ways but becoming the best version of ourselves um, can't, it, it, it doesn't lead in that same direction because if yeah. we're a society of people who is striving for the best version of ourselves, um, man, I'm going to be sitting with that thought for a while because collective, yeah. collective needs require fully actualized individuals. That's such yeah. an incredible um, insight from you. And I thank you for that. Um, all right, we're going we're gonna to transition into some fun stuff because uh, this mm-hmm. has been so much fun and and I want to give you a chance to give us some more insights in who you are. So uh, I want to put a hypothetical in front of you. So I invite you uh, to a potluck. I don't really believe in potlucks. I usually just believe in feeding people. Um, <laughs> and yeah. and you know, tell me your food preferences. Tell me if you're a vegetarian or a vegan. Tell me if there are certain things you don't consume, and I'll make sure I have it for you. But potlucks are are a thing, right? Uh, what are you bringing to a potluck that I invite you to? Okay, um, <laughs> I would hate to say this because I have had to deal with meat, but I am a big meat lover. Yeah, and I got it. I got it. it came from the Spanish. It's not necessarily yeah, yeah. indigenous roots. That's right. <laughs> and, and I've had a battle with it, so I will yeah. bring in probably chicken because chicken is my favorite of all the meats. Yeah, fish because I'm I'm still into oh, fish. Yeah. I'm not I'm That's not like fish. totally yeah. Uh, red meat I'm for, but I have. I have to cut it down. It's just yeah, I know. But I I would bring a chicken. Too. Chicken is like becoming my. It's my favorite food of all time. There you go. What, poor it, chickens, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, is, is there a particular like type that you, that you like to prepare? Well, Mexican style chicken, man. You know yeah, the the, like that the, the way they they do it. Yeah, <laughs> they do it so well. It's so man. good. Uh, and we have a carnicería over here, and you yep. can grill this Mexican. Uh, uh, marinated chickens, man, they taste amazing. Yeah, this is with all the spices and everything. So I would have to say Mexican style. <laughs> yeah, adobo or whatever it might yeah. be. You know, they they just have a way of cooking it. I think about the trips I've taken to Mexico. Uh, my family's from Mexico City, and uh, yeah. so you go and you and you go by the you know the carnicerias, and you have them like multiple chickens mm-hmm. like roasting on the spit and it's just kind of yeah. like oh man <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right yeah. well you're but invited you know, but it's the sure. way but i love the, the marinating what they do to bring yeah. the spices and the prep in there yeah i mean you know i i other people do i i love the the jamaican the jerk chicken if you jerk chicken that. Mm-hmm. that is amazing so yeah. it, it, people can cook chicken pretty good but the mexicans i think have a special absolutely that, i would bring chicken man all I mean, right i'm like you know <laughs> i love it I love it. No, that's brilliant. Um, So one last thing before we conclude. So, um, so I I like to ask what people's top five is Um, and it can be top five, anything. So do you have a top five, anything that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, as you were talking, um, I think you mentioned somewhere on the line about top five road trips. One thing about me is Mm. I love to travel. And yeah. it's a part of me. Um, I have wanderlust. I've had it since I was a kid. Maybe because I always felt imprisoned yeah. wherever I was at in your body. Or yeah. you couldn't, you know, we didn't really yeah. get to the beaches. We stayed. Yeah. We had our own little beach called Marano Beach. 
Okay. In the San Gabriel Valley because it was yeah. on the Barrio Beach. It was a terrible yeah. thing within the, yeah. the Rio Hondo, which is a river that was not taken care of. And there was a little area and people would, that was our beach, man. It yeah. was called a Marana because it really was bad, but it was <laughs> ours. And so it's gone now, but I would say that Wanderlust to me was trying to see the world and yeah. really feeling connected to the world. So I would have to say that my trip to Tokyo was quite mm. startling and amazing. Yeah. It's a beautiful, amazing culture. Uh, yeah. It doesn't mean there's no problems in Tokyo. There's sure. a lot of problems in Japan. But I found that they were very organized and very respectful yeah. and protocols very strong. Now, the interesting yeah. thing about there is I would say my second big city that I love is Mexico City. Yeah. Because it's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. It is chaos. <laughs> That's so true. That's so Everything's true. Over, but you know what? It works for Mexico. <laughs> Everything's like happening Tokyo. all at once. <laughs> all at once. Things are going all over the place. You wonder what the, there was. There was marches into the Socolo by Oaxaqueños. Yep. And there was yep. all kinds of battles. <laughs> and and even the streets were the Perefico, where people were driving around and people are yeah. crossing the streets. And then somehow oh, they don't yeah. get hit. The cars don't stop. And the yeah, people and don't get it's hit. It's just chaotic enough that bad yeah. things don't happen that often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but it works for them just like yep. Tokyo works for the Japanese. So, my yeah. attitude is that that's how you learn that's about cool. people. They find their own way of being who they are, and yeah. it's good. It's good. Yeah. So, the, those would be like the two favorite cities and so opposite. Yeah. And uh, two large cities, because as you know, Tokyo yeah. is the largest yep. city in the world, and Mexico yeah. City, I think, is the largest city in America. I'm not sure, but it's up yeah, there. it's pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> two huge cities, but yet they have two different dynamics and they're both yeah. good for those people. You know what I'm saying? That's cool. That, that's that's cool. the amazing part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, so um, we're going to draw this to a close. I, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Um, it, it's just amazing. So yeah, one of these days um, we'll have some chicken and, and, and a barbecue. Yeah, we'll, go, we'll, down. we'll get some uh, global and do that. And, you know, honestly, uh, when, when I feel comfortable traveling and when it's a, uh, when it feels like things are a little bit under control, I would love to. Uh, I would love to come to THS. It's such a just yeah, man, just to be in that environment it seems amazing. Everybody's invited. I don't care where they're from. They just come to the San Fernando Valley. We got a new space too, two and a half times bigger than our original space. Than the oh, space nice. we're in now. That's so we're growing, great. even though the pandemic has put a stop to it somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And that just is a testament to the community you've built around you and mm -hmm. the way that you've inspired folks to uh, come to this space. How do people uh, support your work? How do they find you? Where? What can they do to get well, closer to these amazing ideas? I'm all over the internet. Um, yeah. Look me up there, so kinds of things. But uh, my website, LuisJRodriguez.com, connects you to things. I also tell people to go to theatruths.org. Yeah. dot org, so you know what the Achuchas is doing and those are the and the other thing I we do me and my wife have a podcast okay if you go to and put hummingbird cricket hour hummingbird cricket Google, hour come nice. up well part of the first thing that pops up because uh, we're on Lipsing, we're on Applecast we're Patreon we're in a lot of places so um listen to our podcast it's, oh yeah it's things. yeah i didn't even know that i gotta find that podcast i'm, I'm a podcast yeah. junkie and listen and, to there's a lot of stuff in there yeah and i love when gente are doing uh podcasts as well because i think yeah. that 
there still aren't enough of our voices out there. And so I think it'd be great to support each other. Um, Luis Rodriguez, thank you humbly um, for joining me today. And um, I just can't wait to hear the feedback from audience members. I think this has been the conversation that I've needed for a while now. And I just appreciate you so much. Well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, folks. And uh, so if you are following Habitually Disruptive, you can still pick us up on the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic feed. Um, you can follow us at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram and Twitter. Like us on Facebook, Two Dope Teachers at Gmail. Oh, no, that's <laughs> that's the Gmail. Uh, like us on Facebook at Two Dope Teachers. And you can email us, Two Dope Teachers at gmail.com. Uh, just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank you to our amazing guest. Make sure you stay disruptive. <laughs>